All right, you can open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. I have been putting off doing 1 Timothy for as long as I physically could. Because, you know, when Steve goes through 1 Timothy, I just want to delay it. So, But I can delay no further. I'm running out of New Testament letters to overview. So, 1 Timothy. We're in 1 Timothy this morning. And just to give you a taste of 1 Timothy, turn to 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. Paul writes this to his true child in the faith as he refers to Timothy. But you, O man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ. Christ, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal might. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we're thankful to turn our Bibles again um, to the pages of your word and your instructions to Timothy, um, particularly in regards to church leadership. I pray that we would all find um, in this letter um, truths that are helpful for us, even in we, where we are at today in our pursuit of you and our pursuit of godliness. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if I was to kind of set up the situation, many of you perhaps are familiar with it, the situation of 1 Timothy is similar to the situation that uh, Titus was written to, but it seems as though uh, during Paul's first imprisonment, that's his imprisonment in Rome, that's Acts 28 that we kind of saw um, in the book of Acts, uh, during his first imprisonment, many things happened in the church world. For one, Paul's predictions of false teachers in Ephesus came true. So remember, Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus for Paul. He spent two and a half years in Ephesus teaching and preaching and instructing people. And when he was on his way to Jerusalem, he kind of had this last message to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, warning them of the dangers that were coming their way. And he even made this prediction in Acts 20, 29, and 30. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. What a statement. What a prediction. I know that fierce wolves, false teachers, are going to come in seeking just their own gain. Maybe their own fame from leadership, or maybe their own financial gain from leadership. They're going to be fierce wolves that are coming in among you. And then he even says something more terrifying, even among your own selves. I mean... What what an awkward elder meeting, right? I know that some of you are going to turn against Christ and seek your own gain in the leadership of his church. That's Paul. And then, of course, that leads us to kind of a few hints and suggestions that we find in 
1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then Titus for what happened after Acts 28. There's, there's good reason to believe that after Acts 28, Paul was released. We see that in church history, but we also see that hinted at in the New Testament letters. For example, you guys are all familiar with this argumentation, but you know the letter to the Philippians. Paul seems very uh, uh, comforted and encouraged that he will be released soon. Versus, you know, 2 Timothy, where he is not so encouraged about his release. We also see in church history, many of the church fathers um, said, witnessed, that Paul himself was released and actually went as far as to go to Spain, which we saw him seeking to do at the end of Romans as well. So there's various reasons for why we, we believe that 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus were all written kind of after Acts 28. Um, in the pages of history that we don't have inspired in our Bible anymore. What happened, Paul would eventually go to Spain, as is witnessed by Clement of Rome, who said Paul served even the far regions of the West, which is if he's in the West, saying Paul went West means probably he was farther uh, beyond Rome than even, uh, than even what Rome was. So that would have been Spain most likely. But it seems as though before Paul went to Spain, Paul decided to return to uh, Macedonia and Asia, which in, in contemporary geography is Greece and Turkey. And, and you remember, uh, Macedonia was where the Thessalonian church was, the Philippian church was, Asia was where Ephesus was, Colossae was. Once again, Paul spent a lot of time with these churches, and Paul decided for some reason to change his plans. He'd been in prison for a while, perhaps, and he just wanted to see these churches again to see how they were doing. Or perhaps he had heard that trouble was coming in the Ephesian church. That's just a suggestion. We also see other things kind of um, indicated to us when you read particularly the end of these, you know, Timothys and Titus. You see that Paul uh, had a companion, many companions during his first imprisonment. Timothy was one of them who was with him in the house arrest. And after or close to his release, Paul apparently set, sent Timothy to Philippi or Macedonia, and he himself went to um, Asia and Ephesus. Once again, maybe he heard that trouble was simmering, brewing in the Ephesian church again. And, and this is once again instructive for us, right? Paul never holds fast to plans. Paul often changes his plans out of concern he has for people, right? So he said, I'm going to delay my travel plans to Spain to make sure the Ephesian church is doing okay. And of course, when he gets there, he sees that many false teachers have infiltrated the church and perhaps even from among those elders themselves. And Paul leaves Timothy, when Timothy finally joins up with him, leaves Timothy in Ephesus to kind of clean up the church a little bit. Uh, this is what we read in 1 Timothy 1.3. I exhorted you when going to Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may command certain ones not to teach different doctrine. And this, of course, gives us the purpose of 1 Timothy. Why was 1 Timothy written? It was written to instruct and exhort leadership in the church. Leadership that is sometimes difficult in the church. Leadership that is uncomfortable in the church. Leadership that requires godliness in the church. Conviction. This letter is written to instruct, motivate, and encourage leadership in the local church. As a matter of fact, look at the motive. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.14, 1 
Paul tells you why he's writing this letter. Whenever you see this, once again, whenever you see a writer say, this is why I'm writing, take special notice of that. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Paul is writing, so Timothy knows how he should conduct himself, and Timothy knows how he should lead others in conducting themselves as well. Of course, this, 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 this whole letter, you could just sum up in the word leadership. Leadership instructions. You could say it that way. That is what 1 Timothy is about. It's about leadership instructions. It's, it's given because of false teachings. It's given because of the need for church order. And these instructions are given because of the difficulties of the pastoral ministry itself. These are leadership instructions. Now, now as I was reading through 1 Timothy, it was very difficult for me to kind of find Paul's flow and, and, and his kind of structure, you'd say. I'm always looking for, like, how does he develop his argument? What is his argument? And it was very, it was very difficult to kind of determine what his structure was. And that's for a very simple reason. Paul is writing a personal letter to someone. And when you're writing a personal letter, sometimes you kind of kind of float around and kind of move from one point to the next kind of a little bit uh, uh, subtly. And that's what we see in Paul as well. He's giving exhortations to Timothy. He's giving instructions to Timothy. But he's doing it in a, in a sort of casual writing way. But that doesn't mean it's, it's at, all, at all unserious or not significant. We see various commands given to Timothy, very strong commands. And so that's kind of how I, I'm going to attach uh, the message here. What is the message of First Timothy? It's, it's given to us in a series of commands. Matter of fact, the, the, the chapters are pretty helpful in dividing up First Timothy. That's what I think. First Timothy 1 is about false teaching. First Timothy 2 and 3 is about how people conduct themselves in the church. First Timothy 4 is uh, personal exhortations to Timothy to do these things. First Timothy 5 is how Timothy should relate to other people in the church, what relationships look like in the church. And then, of course, 1 Timothy 6 is final exhortations. But we'll kind of break this down following the basic commands. Now, that's kind of introduction to the letter. Now, there's something I need to do before we just go into um, learning what this letter has to teach us about leadership, about leadership in the church. I have to answer one very important question. Why do you care? Right? Why should you care about leadership in the church? Now, we've talked about this before, but something dawned on me while I was reading 1 Timothy for why you should really care about the message of 1 Timothy and why you should really care about leadership. Well, number one, uh, first off, there may be some of you that aspire to church leadership. And as it says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, it's a trustworthy saying, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. Oh, I should teach on this because for some of you who truly aspire to uh, serve Christ Jesus in the church, you should see and understand what is required of you. It is a good work, but it's a hard work. But there's another reason also, and, and Pastor Steve has touched on this, and I think this is important as well, uh, uh, the congregation that knows what good leadership looks like uh, is, is an asset and an encouragement 
and a motivation to their leaders. You should know what good leadership looks like so that, so that you can hold your leaders accountable. That's another good reason. But the reason that's most interesting to me, and here's what I would argue for why you should listen to these leadership principles, I would say, if you are a Christian at all, if you are pursuing godliness at all, if you are pursuing sanctification at all, if you are seeking to follow Jesus at all in your life, you are going to be leading in this life. That's what it means to follow Christ. It means you are following Him and you are a leader. Because the world is going to go against you. Maybe some friends that you think are friends are going to go against you, and you're going to be all alone, and you need encouragement and instruction for how to lead. So in some ways, you could, you could understand uh, 1 Timothy as written to you as well. This is for anyone that seeks to do spiritual good in this life, who seeks to make disciples. You are taking leadership. Godliness is leadership. Titus 3 verse 8 says this, right? Uh, godliness is good and profitable for men. He exhorts Titus to speak about these things with all confidence so that those who have believed God will be intent to lead in good works. If you want godliness, you better be ready because you are seeking leadership, spiritual leadership. Maybe not in the church, but in in, in another sense you are, right? Making disciples is pursuing leadership. If you want to do good spiritually, for other people in your life, you're pursuing leadership. You're pursuing to be an example to those around you. So you need the instructions and encouragements, albeit a little bit separated from why Timothy needed these instructions, but you need them all the same. Uh, First Timothy is full of exhortations and motivations, and I think you can apply it even to the basic call of godliness in everyone's life. So listen to this, listen to these uh, leadership lessons, but ask yourself, why do I need to learn these things? What, what leadership lesson is important for me in, in my life? I'm trying to follow Christ. I'm trying to grow in godliness. I'm going to experience persecution if I do. Why do I need such leadership lessons as Paul gives to Timothy here? Let's look at the first leadership lesson. First leadership lesson, be ready for a fight. Be ready for a fight. Once again, anyone who seeks to do spiritual good for someone else better be ready for spiritual resistance. Anyone who aims at doing spiritual good, at leading in good works, should be ready for a fight. See the the basic command here at the end of chapter 1, verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, uh, which some, having rejected, suffered shipwrecked in regard to their faith. Those who take spiritual leadership, responsibility, uh, need to be in a fighting stance, need to be expecting resistance in their life. And this goes for anyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus. Be ready for a fight. And it might not be a fight with your fists. Most likely won't be. It might not necessarily be a fight in, you know, upholding church policy. But it might just be a fight in your own mind to believe that the word of God is true. Be ready for a fight. If you want to live godly in Christ Jesus, be ready for a fight. The church's enemies will attempt to derail, 
Your enemy will attempt to derail your godliness. Where? In your mind. Be ready to fight. That's what you see happen there to these two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, in verses 20, right? Um, They were blaspheming for some reason. Therefore, they're handed over to Satan. They believed false things about God. That's what blaspheming is. Saying false things about God. What kind of doctrine is most dangerous in Paul's mind for Timothy to address? It's interesting. The kind of false teaching, the different doctrine that is particularly dangerous is false teaching, different doctrine about the gospel itself. Look at this. Verse 6. Some shrank from these things, having turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make uh, confident assertions. What are they endlessly talking about? We talked about this on Thursday. They're paying attention, verse 4, to myths, to endless genealogies. They're, they're, just, they're just speculating, 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 instead of furthering the stewardship which is from God by faith. What, what is the danger to the, the gospel here? Basically, what they're saying, they're, they're, they're harping on genealogies and myths. They're, they're harping on, like, uh, what makes me impressive spiritually? Look at, look at who I belong to. Look at what I know. Look at all this secret knowledge that I have amassed. They're basically saying, the gospel, Christianity, is for those who are respectable. If you are from the right spiritual line, if you know the right things, if you're really pretty good spiritually, that's who the gospel is for. It's for the special ones, the ones with secret knowledge. Uh, Before you can really become a Christian, you have to look pretty respectable. You have to become a Jew, right? You have to do certain good works. That's what the false teaching here is presenting. But what's the truth of the gospel that we should fight for? The truth of the gospel, and Paul says this, is that the gospel is not for the pretty good people, not for the respectable ones, not for the ones who have impressive resumes already going to Jesus. It's for the convicted sinners. It's for those people that are desperate before God because they see their true condition under God. Look at Paul says, the law is good in verse 8 if one uses it lawfully. The law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinner, for the ungodly and godless, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral persons, for homosexuals, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, for whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. The law is not to build up your, your, your pride before God and say, hey, this is why you should be thrilled to have me on your side. The law is to convict you of sin. The gospel that you believe is one uh, that that convicts you as a sinner. Uh, the conviction of guilt is what people have that receive the gospel. The gospel is not about puffing up our pride, but, but uh, compelling us in our desperation to pursue Christ and Christ alone in his righteousness. The gospel message, think about it this way, is for lawbreakers. The gospel is for kidnappers. The gospel is for rebels. The gospel is for the homosexuals. The gospel is for those people who are sexually immoral. The gospel is for sinners. The church is actually a place for sinners. 
Those who receive the gospel are those people who are convicted as sinners. As a matter of fact, Paul is an example of this, right? He says in verse 15 of chapter 1, It is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. False teachers want to puff themselves up and create like a a selective group of only the best, only the respectable ones. And Paul is saying the gospel is not for the respectable ones. The gospel is for those people who have nothing to offer to God spiritually. So you could say it like this, the we preach that the church is a place for sinners, right? That, that is what the church is for. For those people who are convicted by the law of their condition before God. And we must fight for this. But we could also say the church is a place for sinners. But the church, be very careful here, is not a place for sin. The church is a place for sinners, but the church is not a place for, sinner, uh, for sin. And this is where we get to our second instruction for leadership. Um, insist on proper house conduct. Now this is, seems to be a little bit of a flip, right? He had just said, fight for the truth of the gospel. But now he says, insist on right godliness in the church. And this is where we get to in 1 Timothy 2 and 3. We are saved from our sin. We are saved to not sin. We are saved to live a life that is full of purpose and full of vision in who we are now as Christians. We're not saved because we are righteous, but we are saved unto godliness and unto uh, a righteous life. Look at, for example, just jumping back over to chapter 3, verse 14. This is the the vision of the church. Uh, Look at the calling of the church how someone ought to behave in the household of God. What is the church? The church is the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. The church is not a social club. The church is not an after-school program. The church is not charity work. The church is not positive self-help programming. Look, Look at what the church is. The church is the household of God, the, the assembly of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. The church is a place of belonging, right? The household word there is referring to a family relationship that's uh, happening throughout the church. This, this is a place where sinners belong and are encouraged by one another to not sin. The church is also a place of abounding. It is the, it is the place where the living God dwells. And is present in, right? The, the, the church of the living God. And the, play, the church is also a place of proclaiming truth. We see this as well. The church is a, the pillar and the support of the truth. The pillar is something that upholds something, that holds it up high so that the world can see. And a support is something that either provides foundation, um, kind of, Uh, support to that pillar, or it could be also referring to a wall of protection. The church is a place that upholds the truth and protects and defends the church. The church is the household of God that seeks to proclaim and protect the truth of God. It's a place of belonging, abounding, and believing, you could say. And what's the conduct of such a place like this? Conduct is godliness. Matter of fact, he says in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, right? we, we pray for uh, secular authorities in our life so that we may have peace to pursue godliness. We, 
We seek godliness and order in every, every member of the church, right? Men are to lift up holy hands. Women are to um, join in quietly, um, not adorning themselves with outward apparel, but adorning themselves with inward godliness. We see all this. The members of the church are to seek godliness. And then, of course, the church is to pursue leaders that are above reproach, that are full of godliness. And just to, just to notice this, Notice how the leaders must be good at household work. Uh, the elders are those who lead their own households well in verse 4 of chapter 3, having their children in submission with all dignity. And then Paul explains why, if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? The church of God is a household, a family of belonging. And its leaders need to be good at leading households. Even the servants, the deacons, are also good at leading the household. In verse 12 of chapter 3, deacons must be husbands of only one wife, leading their children and their own households well. Right? We, and, and basically, if you're going to take lead in the church, the, the church is a place that conduct, certain conduct, godliness is insisted on. Once again, the church is a place for sinners, but it's not a place where we sin. It's a place where we belong, encourage one another, are abounding with the presence of God, and are proclaiming the truth of God. Matter of fact, we want to live as sanctified as we can so that we can be freed up to proclaim the truth of the gospel. The church is a place of belonging. It's a church place of uh, proclaiming, and it's a place of abounding. Another leadership principle, leadership instruction from First Timothy. Uh, I, I just kind of summarized chapter 4 basically this way. Uh, don't give in and don't give up, no matter what. Don't give in and don't give up, no matter what. If you are going to be someone who seeks to spiritually influence others for good, if you're going to be someone who tries to take leadership in godliness, you are going to face persecution, difficulty. People are going to either uh, directly revile you or they're just going to tease you. And you need to not give in and not give up. And, and Paul's instructions to Timothy in chapter 4 are really encouraging for not giving in and not giving up. Th- these are instructions to strengthen Timothy himself as he pursues leadership. Uh, Notice the first five verses, Paul kind of basically warns Timothy that false teaching and false teachers are coming. And you get the sense, because it comes right after chapter three, that Timothy, regardless of how well you teach in this church, regardless of how many great sermons are preached in this church, regardless of how many great leaders are appointed in this church, know this for sure, that false teachers are still going to come. The Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits. So you shouldn't be confused, right? You shouldn't say, hey, if we can just get the church right, we'll have no problems at all. No, we should expect that false teaching and great falling away will come. And, and we know why this happens. Second Timothy 4.3 tells us why. People do not long endure sound doctrine, truth about God and about themselves, because they are, they are born naturally with an itch to be told pleasant things, things that encourage them, things that make them feel content about who they are. 
and staying the way they are and not taking leadership in godliness. That's the kind of leaders that people pursue. We should expect false falsehood. That is one way we don't give in and don't give up. And then Paul also says in chapter uh, 4, 6 through 10, we should build up our spiritual stamina now. Or if you want to be a leader uh, for the spiritual good of others, you should build up your spiritual stamina now in the good seasons, maybe when it's not so hard. That is the time when you build up your spiritual backbone. This is what Paul essentially is saying in 6 or in 4, 6 through 10. Let me just read it to you. In pointing out these things to the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being nourished in the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but refuse godless myths fit only for old women. On the other hand, train yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily training is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance. And it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Notice what Paul is doing there. He's saying, Timothy, I want you to stand strong. So, Timothy, I want you right now, even if it's an easier season in your life, to strengthen your spiritual stamina so that you can stand strong. Remember that peace that the believers are supposed to pray uh, for God to bring through governing authorities in, in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, right? Pray that we can live peaceable and quiet lives. And that quietness of life is so that you can pursue spiritual disciplines and godliness so that you can grow and be strengthened for the difficult seasons ahead. That's what you should do. Spiritual stamina begins with nourishing yourself in the truth of God's word. That's what he says in verse 6, right? Being nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. If you want to build up your spiritual stamina, nourish your soul daily in the word of God. Spiritual stamina comes also from active pursuit of godliness, right? What disciplines am I putting on? What, what virtues am I putting on? What vices am I putting off right now in my life? I want to build my stamina so that I don't give in and I don't give up. Spiritual stamina also comes from a hope that's firmly set in God. That's verse 10 as well. And then in, in 4, 11 through 16, persevere, basically, persevere. When the going gets tough, keep going. This is once again under this big heading, don't give in and don't give up. Paul has said, expect false teachers to come, train for godliness now, and now finally, when it comes, keep going. Persevere even when the going gets tough. There's this great verse that's on the wall of every youth group, and it was on our wall until we took it down for some reason. There was a TV there. That's why we had to take it down from the other building. But it's, it's verse 12, right? Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but show yourself as a model to those who believe in word, conduct, love, faith, and purity. That's a very popular verse. It's a very well-loved verse as well. But notice what Paul is saying here, right? What is he saying here? He's saying, don't make your youth an excuse for giving up. Make your youth a motivation for continuing. That's what Paul is saying, right? Don't make your youthfulness, well, I'm, I'm just a youth. I might as well just give in and give up. No, use your youth as a motivation. I want to, what? Set an example. 
set an example of all of these things in my words and my conduct and my love and my faith and my purity. I want to set an example because I am young. That's how you persevere when it gets tough. You should strive to also show how you've grown. That's another thing he says there in verse 15. Take pains in these things so that your progress will be evident to all, right? Persevere even when the going gets tough. That's basically what Paul is saying in chapter 4, right? Don't give in and don't give up. Don't give in and don't give up. And then uh, leadership instruction number 4. This is from chapter 5. Leadership instruction number four is be honorable in every church relationship. You want to take the lead in your life. You want to be devoted to good works. Be honorable in every single church relationship that you have. And we have the basic, the basic statement there in the first two verses. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather plead with him as a father. To the young men, plead with them. It's implied as brothers. The older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters in all purity. We're to treat all with due honor. Every relationship in the church is to be treated as a family relationship and not a sinful family relationship, a godly family relationship where I want to honor you and treat you with respect. Why? Because you are a member of the family of God, and you are also a proclaimer of the truth of God. And I want to treat you with honor. Particular care is needed in this church that Timothy's uh, leading to care for the needy and the most vulnerable. We see that in chapter 5. Honor your widows. If you would be a future leader, you must have a soft ear for the quietest voices in your life, right? You need to have an attentive ear for the softest voices in your life. So, young men, if you want to be a leader, you need to have a soft ear for your mother's voice in your life, right? That's what a leader is. They have a a kindness and honorableness towards the weak and the, the most vulnerable in their life. You need to honor your elders also. You need to esteem highly those that are proven to be um seeking and pursuing leadership in the church. Now, now this is a contrast, right, between the world's definition of authority and the church's definition of authority. The world's definition of authority is, I do everything in my authority for me. But biblical authority does everything in their ability to bless those who are under them. That's what biblical authority does, and you should uh, reflect that in your honor that you give these men. These men are serving me. Not themselves, but me. You should also be honorable in every relationship, even, even the lowest relationship. And, and notice what Paul says here in chapter 6, 1 and 2, right? He refers to slaves honoring their masters, especially if their masters are Christians. Now, there perhaps was a temptation, right? My master's a Christian, and, and maybe even uh, I'm actually an elder in the church, and my master is under me in the church, and if I am a slave, I should still treat my master with utmost honor. Once again, all relationships in the church have this honor to them. We are all members of the household of God. We are also members of the pillar and the support of truth. We treat one another with honor. Here's a final leadership instruction, and we'll try to shut it down. Leadership instruction number five, guard what you've been given. Leadership instruction uh, five, guard what you've been given. If you are a member of the church of God, you have a sense 
I have been entrusted with something special. The truth of God. The truth of the gospel. I want to guard that. And and notice, uh, it's transitional. Chapter 6, 1 and 2, talking to slaves to honor their masters, is in one sense talking about relationships in the church, but also talking about guarding what you've been given. Notice what he says in in chapter 6, verse 2. Those who have believers as their masters... Oh, sorry, chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, all who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be slandered. Notice, even slaves see themselves and, as having been given a glorious, a glorious thing. The doctrine of God, the good news of God. And it is something that I want to guard through my behavior. I don't want the good news of the gospel to be slandered by my reprehensible behavior to those in authority over me. I want to uphold the doctrine of God, right? And this this is for church leaders especially, but it's for all members of the church. We all have a sense that I have been given something that I want to protect. And that means I'm going to live a certain way, and I'm going to also obey a certain way to all, and I'm going to guard the truth of God as well. And then this is the final chapter here. Chapter 6. I'll just give you Uh, Three basic means of guarding that the Apostle Paul gives Timothy. Three basic means of guarding. Guard what has been entrusted to you by knowing the truth. Guard what has been entrusted to you by purifying your motives. And then guard what has been entrusted to you by motivating your perseverance. We'll we'll try. Uh, Here we go. Guard what has been entrusted to you by knowing the truth. You, You see this. Uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 3, basically all the way through verse 5. And then at the very end of this chapter, uh, uh, verse 20 and 21, there is this, this return from chapter 1 to guarding against false teaching, right? And how do you guard against false teaching? You guard against it by knowing that it's different. He, he says in, in verse 3, right? Uh, anyone who teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words. You know it's a different doctrine. You know it doesn't agree with sound words. Why? Because you know the truth of God. And the same thing happens at the very end as well, right? Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Uh, Turning aside from godless and empty chatter. You know it's godless and it's empty because you know the truth. You guard what has been given to you by knowing the truth of God. But also, you guard what has been entrusted to you by purifying your own motives. And we see here in chapter 6 kind of a a picture into what's motivating these false teachers. They are motivated, in verse 5, supposing that godliness is a means of gain. And Timothy, in, in contrast, is to not be motivated by godliness as a means of gain. He is to be motivated by godliness as, as sufficient in and of itself, right? I am to say, if I have godliness, I have enough. Godliness alone is a worthwhile endeavor. It, it doesn't matter if I don't get first place in something. It doesn't matter if I get picked for all the, all the underschools that aren't very important in this world because of my stance for godliness. It, it doesn't matter if I don't get the, the greatest job that I could in this world. Godliness in and of itself is a means of great gain. It is something that I can be content in. The love of money is the root of all sorts of danger, he says in verse 10 of chapter 6, right? I need to be 
be careful in purifying my motives. I want godliness because godliness on its own is great gain. You guard what has been trusted to you by guarding your motives for why you want to entrust things. And then finally, you guard what has been entrusted by motivating your perseverance. There's a, there's a, a few reasons why or ways in which Paul motivates Timothy to persevere. But it goes right back to those first verses that I read to you, right? But you, O man of God, flee from these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Why should you be eager Why should you be eager to guard what has been entrusted to you, even if you are just a member of the church? Because you have been called in the grace of God to eternal life. That's why I should guard it, because I have received a gift that I do not deserve, and I'm going to treat it as important. But also, notice, you're also motivated because there are people that have watched you, right? Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, this perhaps refers to ordination, but more likely, I think, it refers to the confession that Timothy made at his baptism service, right? I confess that Christ is Lord, and I am holding on to eternal life by holding on to him. And many were there watching that and witnessing that. And that is motivating, right? I do not want to let down or mislead those people who saw me take the good confession. You're also called to follow Christ's example. You see that in verse 13, right? Every person that wants to follow Christ is going to suffer difficulty and trial, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. But then verse 15 is helpful, very motivating. You keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 15, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal might. Amen. You are motivated to guard because you know the one who is more powerful than any of the evil or the schemes that is against the church, right? You know the one who is the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that motivates you to guard, right? Because I know the ultimate God, the true and only sovereign, uh, to whom all praise belongs. This motivates me to guard what has been entrusted. So here's Paul's leadership lessons to Timothy in 1 Timothy. Uh, you, once again, I'll just run through them real quick, right? Be ready, to, uh, ready for a good fight. Insist on proper house conduct. Don't give in and don't give up. Be honorable in every church relationship and guard what has been given to you. I'm going to pray, and then after I pray, I want you guys to just turn to your neighbors and say, Hey, Uh, This was the leadership instruction that was particularly valuable to me. And then also answer the bonus. Why this was the leadership lesson that was particularly valuable to me. Otherwise, it doesn't count. Uh, So, let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the, the blessedness of having your truth and being able to be informed and instructed by it. I pray that none of us would see ourselves outside of some capacity to lead in godliness. We pray that we would all take these things to our heart. In full of conviction. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.